Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. I've entitled this message tonight, Entering God's Land of Promise, Lessons from the Book of Joshua. It's kind of a long title, but you'll get the jest. I'll start this out with a story of my own. Many, many years ago in a faraway land. It sounds like a very familiar start of a story. But many years ago, I was a young man, very strong, capable, plenty of hair, uh, very good looking. I was... This is a true story, so you have to be truthful all the way through. (laughs) But I had this intense desire to be a pastor. It was well over 20 years ago. And I was a house painter. In fact, I was living in northern New Mexico, working in a town called Angel Fire. I'm sure many of you have been there. And I would spend most of my day atop a very tall ladder with a paintbrush and a bucket and usually a wire brush in my mouth and headphones with Christian music or tapes or Bible on tape flowing through my head. And, and the only thing that I could think of throughout the day is, thank you, Lord, for this job, but Lord, if only I could be a pastor. If only I could serve you full time and, and I would dream about it and I would think about it and how it would work. And at the end of the day, it would always come up the same. Uh, Dave, you'll never be a pastor. That was the, the thought in my mind. Because where I was right then, in the middle of nowhere, looking over the top of mountains, very sparsely populated place, painting houses, I thought, there's no way that I will ever be able to become what is deep in my heart. And it was deep, my friends. It was a deep desire. And I, I would constantly wrestle. Is it from you, Lord? Is it from you? Or is it just mine? Because for some weird reason, I thought that everybody wanted to be a pastor. <laughs> I lived a little bit longer. Not very many people want to do that. It's not that desirable. I mean, you, I know you like the cars that we drive. But uh, anyway. Now. I look back some 20 years. And I think, I look back at that skinny, good-looking, long-haired kid who's standing on that ladder, and I think, you know what, kid? The dream that was placed in your heart was placed there by God. Because as an older, wiser, and possibly even better-looking man with less hair can look back at you now and say, it was real. It was true. The promises that God had given you were not of yourself, but they were from Him. Now, where does a, something like this start? It starts with what I call great vision. With few exceptions, almost every great movement, adventure, or entrepreneurial endeavor begins with a vision of what could or will be. 
Dr. Martin Luther King. What was his famous statement? I have a dream. It was the, the spark of the civil rights movement, wasn't it? And in, it has had its impact throughout a whole nation. But it started in the mind of an individual who said, I am not going to follow status quo. I will stand against this. It was a good dream. Vision statements are a part of corporate America. In fact, I went online this today. I found out I was preaching yesterday. I went online <laughs> today. It's usually as a preacher, you want to say, well, this week as I was going through all my studies, it was actually today. I saw <laughs> uh, McDonald's vision statements. Very telling. McDonald's vision is to be the world's best quick service restaurant experience. Being the best means providing outstanding quality, service, cleanliness, and value so that we make every customer in every restaurant smile. General Motors, here's theirs. GM's vision to be the world's leader in transportation products and related services. We will earn our customers' enthusiasm through continuous improvement driven by the integrity, teamwork, and innovation of GM people. You see, a vision facilitates goals. Goals facilitate plans, and plans facilitate action, and action brings a dream to life. Let me say that again. A vision facilitates goals. You can see that... that You have a vision, you have desires, but then you begin to plan beyond that and set goals in order to reach that vision. Once you have the goals, you begin to plan. And once you have the plan in place, you can move into action. And once it's moved into action, it is only a matter of time before that dream typically is realized. That's how it works. Now, not all visions, not all dreams are from the Lord. They're human in origin, and some are good, and some are just plain bad. But on the other hand, there are visions, dreams, or ideas that have their origins in the promises or commands of God and are unique in that they carry with them the resources and the power of God himself. Let me give you an example. 2001 B.C., a promise was given to a guy by the name of Abraham. Any of you heard of him before? Abraham had many sons. All right. The promise that was given to him was by God. And here it is. He says, I will make you a great nation. And he also said to him, I am giving you a land. Now, You have to think of the circumstances here. Old Abe was probably a Bedouin, left his country, Ur of the Chaldees, not really big on the map, so to speak, and probably didn't have any great dreams of grandeur. When God gave him this promise, he didn't have one single son. His wife, very beautiful, great companion, Funny sense of humor. Didn't have any kids either. He didn't have any land. And he didn't have any kids. And yet, 
God gave him this promise. Now, I wonder what he was thinking. Me? Me, a great nation? What? Like, what, what, the Hittites? Or maybe, like, the Amorites? Or maybe, like, the Egyptians? I mean, me? Really, God? I mean, who am I? Maybe I've lost my mind. I mean, how can this be? And if you've ever been in that state before where God shows you something and he tells you something, maybe by a command or you read it in his word and then a vision begins to form and it, it sort of explodes. Like, I, I, I followed you so far, but man, I, I don't get it. I can see that happening to him. I can see it happening to her, but I definitely can't see it happening to me. The land that was promised to him, get this, was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was filled with his descendants. So many descendants that if you were to number them, they would be more than the sands of the sea. It would be a land of their own for he and Sarah and and all of their people. It would be a land of blessing from the Lord. It would be a place where they would build a life together. A place where they would be free to worship God. It was really The greatest place that a guy like him, a worshiper of the living God, could be in. Now, many believers have been given similar promises from God that have produced a vision for your life of what could be. But for some of us, it's too good to be true. Because tonight's message, it's leading somewhere. It's not just an academic look at scriptures. I believe that the contents of this message are meant for every person in this room, not just for a few people who will be convicted tonight. Because, guys, we have been, many of us as believers, washed and cleansed, and we have a pretty good life. But the truth is, we live in a world that is fallen, and it's very dirty, and it's very limiting, and, and oftentimes the way that we live our lives or the things that we say are not necessarily in line with the clear vision of what you've seen before. And so, yes, you may nod your head in church and go, yes, oh, hallelujah, I received that for me. That's it. But inside you're thinking, oh, I wish I could only live like that. I wish it was really real for me. And I, and I, I believe if you hear what the Lord's saying tonight, it is very, very real for you. And it's very real for me. You may be thinking, what? A life that's not bound by sin? Can it really be? I mean, if I were going to be honest, really honest, can that really be? Some of you have experienced that. Uh, Maybe God's given you a, a, a vision of a godly home where everybody in the house loves each other. But you've been in your home. You've been at the Thanksgiving dinners that exploded into a food fight. You think, could it really be my family? Could it really be that maybe God would use me as a person of influence to make a difference in my community and maybe even in the world itself? Could it be that God would allow me to be at peace with him, real peace with him, where I really understand that he accepts me so much so that I even have peace with who I am? Yeah. Those kind of visions oftentimes are too far. I mean, I can have a portion of that, but surely God doesn't mean me to have all of that. The fact, my friends, is that the Christian life 
is filled with promises. In fact, I'll read a few of them to you. Very powerful and rich promises. Over in Hebrews 13, we are promised God's presence. He said, I will never leave you. We've also been given God's protection in Genesis chapter 15. He says, I am your shield. We've been given a promise of God's power and his provision. In Isaiah 41, he says, I will strengthen you. I will keep you. We've also been given a promise of his purpose. He says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace. And not of evil. Jeremiah chapter 20. We have also been promised God's rest. He says, come unto me all that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. We've also been promised God's cleansing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever had somebody make a promise? And they didn't keep it? Yeah, look, I see the faces right now. Yeah, I can think of that dirty rat. It would have been better if he would have never opened his mouth ever in his whole life. After he saw what he did to me by not telling the truth, why didn't he just come and tell me he wasn't going to do it? It really bums you out. Now, let me ask you, have you ever made a promise to someone that you didn't keep? Oh, yeah. I mean, a couple of times, I'm sure, but there's a valid reason for that. Because of our experiences and because of our understanding of human nature, oftentimes we transfer that over to the living God. And it is a very, very big mistake. You see, there's something that we have to note as human beings. We see the world through our very limited scope. I see my world through my education, my understanding of the world, what I know about God, what a God has allowed me to see, and and what I can what I can achieve, so forth. That's my world. It's my makeup. It's it's all that I know, and I view the world through those lens. And if you've had person after person let you down, there's a tendency that when we hear these great and promises of God, we'll say, "Okay, fine, that may work for somebody else," but God's not really giving me that promise because I don't think he really likes me. Some of you don't believe that God likes you. I know that out there because I believe that he didn't like some of you too, but (laughs) that's a whole other story. (laughs) Again, that's my very small view of the world. But then there's another group of us that said, well, you know what? I know that, that God likes me. I mean, everybody likes me. And he's given me a promise. And surely he's going to keep that promise. But the moment that it doesn't happen on the time, on the dot that you think it should happen, you begin to question, what happened to you, God? You don't even like me. Why would you do that to me? You don't keep your promises. It's a lack of trust and understanding and faith in the living God that he will do what he says he's promised to do. Okay, we have God's promises. They come with a vision. But then we also see that God's promises come in God's timing. Remember we mentioned that Abraham was given his promise around 2001 B.C.? I'll make you a great nation. 
following a little timeline here, he has a son by the name of Isaac. He has a grandson by the name of Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And a whole family goes into Egypt. And they're there for over 400 years. As they're there, they grow into a very large and powerful tribe. They spend about 40 years in the wilderness with Moses. Moses has 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in in Midian, and then 40 years in the Sinai wilderness. And then Moses dies at the age of 120. They're still not in the land of promise, but their numbers, my friend, are growing. The promise that God would take one man who didn't have any kids and begin to build him into a great nation is coming through and happening on the pages of history. Enter at this point a guy by the name of Joshua. His name is Yeshua, or literally Yahweh is salvation. Joshua, just by a little note here, was an assistant to Moses. He was someone who followed him closely. He was one of the 12 spies who had earlier, when sent in by Moses into the land near Jericho, into the promised land, who came back with a good report. We're told over in Numbers chapter 27 that he was a man filled with the Spirit. And as we come to the first page of the book of Joshua... It is around the year 1400 B.C. And it is over 600 years since Abraham was promised that he would enter and have a land for himself. He did not see it in his lifetime. But his praises are hailed in the New Testament. As the father of all who believe, because he accepted the promises of God as fact, though not seeing, he believed that God's word was true and faithful. Look with me at Joshua chapter 1, and we'll read the first four verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan and you and all this people to the land which I am giving you, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give you, as I said to Moses. For the wilderness that is in Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all of the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. You see, God is never late. He is always on time. Now, for some little insignificant guy who could have blown off the pages of history and no one ever know his name, a guy by the name of Abraham, for God to give him such a fantastic uh, promise and then begin to fill it should be an indicator of what he can do not only in my life but in your life as well. How many of you have heard of the missionary Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, very famous missionary to China. He had these very telling words about God's timing. He said, in his journal he wrote this. He says, our heavenly father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. 
We do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China. But if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend on it. God's work will be done in God's way and will never lack in supply in any way. I recently went on the internet. When I say recently, today. (coughs) And found that the, the most conservative estimate of Christians living in China today is that of 35 million Christians. The highest estimate is set at 150 million Christians living in China. Hudson Taylor had no idea what that vision that he God had put in his head generations and generations ago, exactly what that would mean. But what God started in the heart of one Englishman and sent him over to a foreign country, something that everyone looked at him and said, said, if God wanted you there, he'll send someone else. And yet he had a vision, he had a plan, and it was fulfilled by the Lord himself. Now, here's the catch. We like the idea of, the plan, of God's plan. We like the idea that God has a promise for us. But here is the sad truth about entering into the land of promise. As Joshua and all the children of Israel had came upon the border of that territory, ready to head over and cross the Jordan and into the land, the land itself was inhabited with hostels. People who did not want to say, Oh good, hey everybody, the Israelites are here. We've been waiting for you. You know, come on in. We're just packing up. Don't mind us. Uh, you know, if there's a few of the things broken, just send us a bill and we'll take care of it. They heard about the prophecies. They were much afraid and they were prepared, armed to the tooth, ready to fight to preserve their land. The land of promise, yes, it was the land of promise, was also a land of battles. Now you say, wait a minute, are you kidding me? The promised land is full of battles? What gives? I mean, we we heard all of these great promises. The Christian life is a life full of promise of forgiveness of sin, peace with God, overcoming sin, purpose out the nose. Isn't that what it's all about? And yes, it is. But yes, it is also filled with battles. Battles that will be fought by the believer. Engaging against an enemy. Jesus, in John chapter 16, verse 33, said these words. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why battles? Because we have an enemy and the Lord will destroy him. But as he does and he puts his influence under his foot, he will grow us up and bring glory to his name in the process. The battle will be won, my friends, first of all, by the Lord's presence. Over in the book of Joshua, chapter 5, look with me at verse 13. It came to pass that when Joshua was by Jericho, 
that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandal of your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. This commander of the Lord's army, ready to go into the battle of Jericho, was none other than Jesus Christ himself. How do we know it's God? Because the only time men are commanded to take off their sandals and to fall on their face and worship is in the presence of Almighty living God. There are no men to be worshipped. It is God Himself. And so He brings the people to this battle, a a, a land that is, is filled with fortresses, and He shows up Himself. He is the commander of the army. And here's the principle that Joshua learned and the children of Israel learned. It's this. It says, when God sends us into battle, He leads the way. I don't want to go into battle. And He says, come on, follow me. I've come as the leader in this whole process. I'm not going to stay behind and say, All right, you guys, going out into battle. Uh, if you get killed, it's okay. You're saved and I'll, you'll bring you on up. <laughs> Tell me about it at the dinner table. No. He's there, totally engaged to lead his people into a land that he promised them himself. Okay, it will be won by his presence. It will also, this battle will be won By his plan and his power. Very interesting plan. God's plans seem foolishness to us in the world. When you tell your friends that uh, you're living a fulfilled life and you're happy. And they say, well, how are you doing it? Well, we get up every Sunday morning. We go to church. What? Yeah, we go sit in church. Well, what do you do there? Well, you know, we usually get a little bit of coffee. And they're thinking, okay, that's pretty good. And then... We go into a room and we sing songs into the air to God. Really? And then we listen to someone preach about the Bible and it makes us really happy and it's changed our lives. And the world looks at that and says, are you crazy? That's what's changing your life? What God does and the way that God does things is completely contrary to the way that the world does things. Here's an example. He told him, I want you to drive, go around the city six days, once around the city. And then on the seventh day, I want you to go around seven times. Okay, and this is what you do. You ready to do it? Yeah, 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 we're ready. Okay, blow a trumpet and then the walls will fall down. And I'm sure at some point someone in the group is going, you know <clears throat> You know, if the walls don't fall down, we're going to look pretty stupid. I don't know if you know that, but it's not going to be, it's not going to look very good on a record. Not going to take us seriously. Well, they took Jericho. They had a successful southern campaign. They also moved into the north and had a successful northern campaign. And a lesson that they were taught by the Lord himself as they were facing the the biggest army so far in the northern campaign uh, over in Joshua chapter 11 was this. The Lord said, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. 
So you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Why did he do that? It's because horses and chariots were strong, powerful implements of war. And in Psalm 20, verse 7, we are told this. It says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. He he set it up so that his people would always remember that the victories that had been won were won because of his power. Not because of military prowess or leaning upon all the resources that they possessed. But they were powerful because God was with them. It's God's abilities. Why do you think he had them burn the chariots and hamstring the horses? Because they would soon begin to trust in them and believe in them. And say, look at all of this wonderful blessings that we've been given by God. And then soon they attack other people, not trusting in the Lord, but trusting in their own selves. Their motto is that we trust God himself and no one else. Why? Because Second Corinthians 10 tells us this. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity, into obedience of Christ. Into the obedience of Christ. That is the battle plan. Now, many of us fight battles on a daily basis. You fight with your neighbors. You fight with yourself, your family traffic. But the fight that we've been called to engage in is a spiritual battle that's going on all around us. And I have to tell you, my friends, that this battle is very, very honorable. You may be thinking, I'm a pacifist. You know, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Come on. (laughs) I don't want to hurt anybody, but wait a minute. You need to wake up. Whether you're swinging a sword or not, you're in a battle. You're either protecting your friends and standing up for the cause of Christ and sharing the gospel, or you're letting it go by, but you're in the middle of the battlefield. A battlefield's good. It's a battle where we tell people about God's love and mercy. We care for those who are hurting. We protect the innocent. We do good and resist evil. We pray for others. We go engage in disaster relief. We help others become free from sin for the first time in their lives. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. That's a great battle to be engaging. Would you say amen to that? Amen. amen. Well, it's true that we enter into this battle. But before we enter into battle, there's one little catch. If we're going to battle, we must enter in by God's way. God's ways are the ways of consecration and cleansing. Joshua chapter 3 verse 5. Just before the Israelites began to cross over into the Jordan, he says these words. Joshua said to the people, Sanctify or cleanse yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Before they enter into Jericho, 
He calls all the men together and he circumcises those who had not been circumcised, consecrating them, cleansing themselves, setting themselves apart as related to God. They were defeated right after they went through Jericho at Ai, a very little city, because someone in the camp had disobeyed. You've heard of the sin of Achan. And they had to stop and the whole camp repent and cleanse themselves, sanctify themselves, because God was going to do something amazing and wonderful in their midst. The way to God's promises, my friends, is through God's cleansing. The way to God's promises is through God's cleansing. There's a good example of this in the New Testament. You remember a group of guys by the name the Disciples? Very famous group of people. We talk about them a lot. Just before, very soon before, Jesus would go to the cross. The greatest spiritual battle that the world had ever seen thus far. Just before that point, he pulled the disciples aside, took them to a room, and he began to wash their feet. And it's a very weird thing that was going on. I mean, if you were, the the person that washed the feet was typically the lowest servant in the house. They wore sandals, they went through dusty roads, your feet would be caked, and it was a nice, soothing thing to do. But Jesus shouldn't have been the one washing their feet. And Peter picked up on it, and he said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash your feet, then You won't have any part of me. And then Peter responded, but then, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my whole body, everything, everything. And Jesus said, he who is clean need only wash his feet. What's so important about feet? Huh? Well, the average person walks approximately eight to 10,000 steps a day. That translates to about a hundred and 15,000 miles in your in my lifetime. Which also a little better example of this will let you know that that means about four times around the globe. Four and a half times around the globe. That's how many feet that we walk. During the average day of walking, the total forces on your feet can total in the hundreds of tons. It's the equivalent of an average weight of a cement truck. That's the amount of weight and pressure that is built up on your feet throughout a day. Each foot contains 26 bones. You add the two feet together and the bones in your feet make up one quarter of your total bones in your whole body. Why did he choose the feet? Because the feet are the place that holds up the whole body. But it is also the point that stays closest in contact to the world. And it is the place that gets the dirtiest. You know, back in World War I, we saw a phenomenon known as what we call trench foot. Soldiers would be in these trenches for days, for weeks. There would be water, standing in water. Oftentimes there would be body and running rats and it would become rampant with disease everywhere. And a, a disease known as trench foot would break out where the, the feet would swell. It would become very painful. They'd be standing in boots and dirty socks for all of this time. And if some of their wounds were not attended to, the worst that could happen would be gangrene would sit in and they'd have to amputate. 
And the way that they found to treat the soldiers was to get them out of the water, take off their shoes, cleanse their feet, push fresh socks and boots on them, and then send them back out into the field. They need only clean their feet. I have kids at my house. Specifically now, I have young boys who love basketball. And they're awesome. They're a lot of fun. But something happens to a kid about the age of, say, eight on, that once they've played really hard all day, be it basketball or some other sport, a certain kind of odor begins to develop. I can remember one day distinctly after probably a long, extended, protracted time of basketball, getting into the car and driving along, and I, I smelled something. I smelled, smelled again. It didn't smell very good. And, and, and I thought, honey, is, did you put a dead rabbit under the seat or something? And I said, no, Dave. No, I, I haven't. I, I didn't. And uh, I looked back. a certain group of people's shoes. Now, you may think, well, what do you care? You know, maybe my feet stink. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dirty. What, what does it matter? How, who does it really hurt? The truth of the matter is it contaminates everything around you. You see, God knows that you and I live in a dirty world, doesn't he? He knew that the disciples lived in a dirty world. He didn't pull them aside and make fun of them and go, They should change your name from Simon Peter to Simon Stinky. I mean, come on. He got a basin out and he grabbed them and began to very gently and lovingly wash and cleanse their feet because if they were going to have any ministry and any influence and any longevity in relationship to him they got to clean that stuff off they got to clean it off we read a passage earlier tonight and i want to close up with this first john chapter 1 verse 9 says If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's been called, this passage has been called God's bar of soap. If we'll just admit, if we'll just actually show him the foot, we'll actually show him our lives. If we confess our sins, say what is true, that is painfully obvious, not only to you, but to those around you. That he's very faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we are ever to be battle ready, if we are ever really ready to enter into that promise and good land, we got to clean the gunk off. Now, there's two types of dirty. I'm leading this somewhere. The first type of dirty is the type that's head to toe. That, this, this is a person who has never been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You, you could say, I, I've never asked God for forgiveness. I don't have Jesus as my Savior. He doesn't live in my life. I've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. That person is, is outside the pale of godliness. It's apart from, separated from God. That's a first level of dirty. But then there's a second level, like Simon Peter, who had been cleansed from head to toe 
But his feet had become dirty from walking through the world. And Jesus had provision, not only for the one, but for both of them. And we're going to do something tonight that's not uncommon, but it's very in keeping with communion. In just a few minutes, I'm going to ask the communion board to come forward. And we're going to put into practice what we've read in this portion of Scripture. And that is, if we confess our sins, He's faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, and you won't be. I guarantee you that. But what we're going to do is give each of us a chance to really get right with God. I want you to think about that vision that you have in your mind. Those words, those promises that you've been given from God. And you're thinking, man, could it really be true? You're almost giving up on it. You can't believe it. Don't give up. Tonight could be the very night where you actually begin to enter in into that promise that God has had for you. Everyone, please bow your heads. For those of you who you say, Dave, I'm a part of that first group, man. I have never been cleansed. I've never been cleansed by the Spirit. I've never given my life to Christ, and I need Him. I want to be clean. I want to be in a good relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to raise up your hands. Just raise it up. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you say, I'm not a believer, I need Him, just raise up your hand right now. Awesome. Right on. Another one in the back. Anyone else, we're going to pray together. And we're going to believe that God will cleanse you by the power of His Word. Anyone else? So I've never met Jesus Christ. And if I were to die tonight, I know that I'm not cleansed. I wouldn't be with Him. Amen. Simply where you are right now, just bow your head and pray this with me. Dear Lord, I give you my life. I believe in you. And I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me of my sins. I want to live for you. I want to follow you as your child. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And allow me to live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.